Hi, and welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. This is episode 12, Jason and the Golden Fleece, part 1. I'd initially conceived a retelling of this Greek myth back in episode 9. As so often with my writing, things got a little out of hand, and before I'd even got halfway through the story, I was at over 10,000 words or roughly 50 minutes of recording. It was never going to fit into my anthology episode. I made some veiled promises at the time to tell the story in full later, and I've been slowly working away at it since. In the style of Homer, the Argonautica is the only surviving Hellenistic epic to come down to us. Written by Apollonius of Rhodes in the 3rd century BCE, either after or during his tenure as chief curator of the Alexandrian Library. Episodic in nature, it more closely resembles the Odyssey than the Iliad in that it feels like a lot of mini-quests stuck together, underpinning a broad central narrative. The masterpiece is broken down into four separate books, and I've decided to take my lead from the man himself and break down my version into four parts too. These will be released mid-month, over the next four months, to fulfil my promise. However, the problem with Apollonius's version is that he was writing for an audience well-versed in the traditions of the tale. The story is at least as old as the Iliad, and like Homer, Apollonius understood that his listeners, or readers, would already have a grasp of the fundamentals and had no need to set the stage, so to speak. Separated as we are by millennia, a lot of the fascinating detail isn't commonly understood. In that vein, I'll be taking the opportunity to garnish every part with as much relevant backstory as possible. The author wove for his audience an intricate web of well-researched nuance and myth upon a framework formed by centuries of development. I hope to be able to show you all how truly rich and interconnected Greek mythology is by fleshing out his story with some extra detail and digression. This first section will cover the genesis of the Golden Fleece itself, how it came to be on the other side of the world and the motivations of Jason and his merry band of Argonauts in questing for its recovery. Book 1 of the Argonautica begins with the muse telling the reader about all the many heroes that descended on the town of Yolkus to join Jason. Following the beginning of the quest, sailing across the Aegean and into the Sea of Marmara, finishing just as they are about to enter the Bosporus Channel. My retelling now will finish there as well, but we'll start a generation before the quest with the story of the fleece itself. Without further ado, let's get into it. It all started when Athamas, the king of Orchomenos, took the cloud nymph Nepheli as his wife. And why not? He was the son of a man who founded one of the three main branches of the Greeks, the Aeolians. He could marry whomever he pleased. And pleased he was. These nymphs were very popular as brides in the early period of the heroic age. However, the children from such unions often had interesting lives, and it would prove true in this case too. The newlyweds soon welcomed twins into the world, a boy named Phrixus and a girl named Ellie. Before long, King Athamas made the mistake of so many other Greek kings before and after him. He got the wandering eye. He spied and fell in love with the daughter of Cadmus, the legendary founder of Thebes, who introduced the alphabet to the Greeks, having brought it from his homeland of Phoenicia. Now I have a little sympathy for Athamas here. My better half and the love of my life is the daughter of a man from Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon. I've found her positively bewitching since the first time I laid eyes on her. Perhaps Cadmus's daughter Eno had the same effect on Athamas. Either way, he divorced his nymph bride and married the princess of Thebes. He clearly didn't vet his new bride very well, as she was one of the so-called Menads, a band of female devotees to Dionysus and his most sacred of rites. They were well versed in the debauchery practiced by their deity and had a penchant for the slaughter of animals and small babes. 
The latter fact presented a clear and present danger to the children of Nepheli and Athamas, who were now Eno's stepchildren. Becoming the stereotypical evil stepmother, Eno began immediately to plot the demise of Phrixus and Ellie. Stealing away by night, she acquired the seed crop for next season's planting, and in secret, roasted them up. The countryside's farmers became alarmed as normal germination failed along with the crop due to the seeds being pre-cooked. They sent a delegation to Athamas, beseeching the king to deliver the land from imminent starvation. The king, in turn, sent some of them off to a nearby oracle to receive counsel from the gods. Ever wily, Eno intercepted them and paid them a healthy bribe to tell a false oracle to her husband. As they returned, Athamas asked what was required by the gods to ease their current predicament. He was told that the oracle had said that the only way to lift the curse from the land was to sacrifice his son, Phrixus. Grief-stricken, the king banished the men from his sight, consoling himself in the embrace of his lovely bride. With silky, venom-laden words, she brought her husband around to the idea. It will be all right, she said. You still have a beautiful daughter, and we will together have many more children. Without grain, all will perish. Phrixus would understand. He was slowly coaxed and reluctantly agreed to the false oracle's proposition. I think I forgot to mention that the twin's mother, Nepheli, was a cloud nymph. Whilst jilted, she might have been. She hadn't forgotten about her children. Not in the least. She was floating around in a very ethereal-like fashion, watching her usurper spin a vicious web of deceit. Deciding that there wasn't a moment to lose, Nepheli went down to earth to save her children, and she brought a friend along in the form of a magical golden ram. According to Gaius Hyginus in his fables, this ram was the offspring of Theophany, another nymph, and Poseidon, Zeus's brother and fellow philanderer. Theophany was beautiful and consequently beleaguered by many admirers. One of them was Poseidon, and he didn't like an audience, nor competition. He spirited her away to the mythical isle of Crenissa. As further protection from Theophany's Facebook stalkers, he turned her into a ewe, himself into a ram, and the unsuspecting inhabitants of the island into lambs. Undeterred, and after having sailed to the isle, the posse of enthusiasts were amazed to find no people to speak of, just a mama and daddy sheep and lots of little baby sheeps. This was okay, as after all that sailing and rowing, they were quite hungry and started roasting the little lambs up for dinner. When Poseidon saw the shooters eating the people he had turned into a flock of lambs, he turned them into wolves instead, which no doubt caused surprise bordering on alarm to the people who thought they were having a cooked lamb dinner. At any rate, in this animalistic form, Poseidon mates with Theophanes, and the golden ram was the result of the union. Right, so the reunion between Nepheli and her children was briefed by nature of the head priest coming to sacrifice Phrixus. She told them to climb onto the back of the ram, who could fly naturally, and that he would take them to safety. As the golden creature lifted Phrixus and Halley into the sky, their mother waved them goodbye. She would never see them again. Well, maybe she did. It's not recorded. But it's more dramatic this way. I'm not entirely sure why, but the ram was instructed to carry the children to Colchis, an area on the eastern fringes of the Black Sea. As the crow flies, or ram in this instance, it's a journey of roughly 1,600 kilometres, or conveniently for me as I'm no good at imperial measurements, 1,000 miles. What happened next may have been the result of clear air turbulence or the lack of safety belts, but poor Heli fell from the back of the golden ram and perished in the sea. The point where she legendarily fell is in the stretch of water known today as the Dardanelles. This, 
gave the Greeks their name for the same body of water, the Hellespont, or the Sea of Helly. Morose, Phrixus and his mount circled for some time, but there was nothing to be done. With a heavy heart, they continued on to Colchis. Alighting at the inland city of Ys, the two were greeted by King Aetes, son of the sun god Helios and ruler of the region. To honour his host, and as per his mother's instructions, Phrixus sacrificed the golden ram in the name of Zeus. If you're thinking that's a little ungrateful considering the ram had practically saved his life, I agree with you. Though, removed from the event, if indeed it ever occurred, by a period of 3,000 years there is little recourse for us now. But please join me in feeling a little indignation at the creature's fate. Phrixus skinned the carcass and hung its golden fleece on an oak tree within the city's sanctuary of Ares, the god of war. King Aetes in turn rewarded Phrixus by giving his daughter, Halcyope's hand in marriage to the young refugee. Okay, that's the story of how the Golden Fleece came to reside in this far-off Never-Never land. It's a great little backstory, but really has nothing to do with Jason and the Argonauts' quest for the Golden Fleece. Most of the characters we just met, apart from the king, we'll never see again, so don't bother with trying to remember them if you'd like to keep some neurons free. As we move into the tale proper, I'll have plenty more names for you, and some of them I might even pronounce correctly too. At roughly the same time as poor old Mr. Ram was getting flayed, back in Greece, the former queen of Iolcus, Alcimede, was giving birth. Normally a time for joyous celebrations, but as I said, she was the former queen. Her husband, the former king of Iolcus, Jason, was currently languishing in prison, put there by his half-brother Pelias. He'd done so to take the throne for himself, and had either banished or murdered any other possible claimant to the title of king. Alcimede was a woman of honour, and the child she was in the process of birthing was the result of an illicit conjugal visit to Jason in prison. The risk is clear. If the baby turned out to be male, then that presented a threat to Pelias's rule, and he wasn't taking any chances. Hovering around the birthing suite to see the result for himself. Alcimede was wise to the king and had arranged a cunning ruse to throw him off the scent. As the baby was delivered, the nursemaid surrounded the child and struck up a dirge of lamentation so dire it carried a chill wind straight from Tartarus with it. Pelias fell for it hook, line and sinker. Mistakenly assuming the baby had been delivered stillborn, he left the womenfolk to mourn safe in the knowledge that no future skion of Jason's would haunt his kingship. What to do with the bouncing baby boy? Raising him in Yolkus was certainly untenable. Moreover, how long would the king allow these illicit conjugal visits to continue? Best to make that arrangement permanent and lock the former queen up with the former king, or worse still, be rid of the pair forever. The decision was made to send Jason, the baby that is, off to be raised by the noble centaur Chiron. Coming from the Greek for bullslayer, Kentoros, these half-man, half-horse creatures generally fell into one of two categories. Drunken degenerates, or wise sage, a fairly standard dichotomy in ancient Greece. Fortunately for young Jason, Chiron fell into the latter of these two categories and was renowned throughout the land as the wisest of his kind. Indeed, this particular centaur would go on to mentor a young Achilles in the coming generations, though there are many in Hades who wished he could have taught the son of Peleus some anger management as well. Okay, so all of the pieces are in place. We've got the golden fleece hanging from an oak tree, the rightful king of Iolcus rotting in jail, a fate placed upon him by his greedy and power-hungry half-brother, Pelias, and Jason, 
safe and sound on the slopes of Mount Pallion, under the aegis of Huron, the wise centaur. As a side note, the Pelion mountain range stretches out east from the modern town of Volos, which contains the ancient site of Yolkus. It's an extremely beautiful region all year round, and the range contains over 20 exquisite villages with architecture not seen elsewhere. I can't recommend the region enough for anyone looking for something a little off the beaten track while travelling Greece. A generation passed, and Jason grew to manhood, farming the land on the slopes of Mount Pallion under the careful tutelage of Huron. After a hot day at the plough, he stopped to inquire the news from a passerby. He was told that King Pelias of nearby Yolkus was holding a great sacrifice to Poseidon by the water's edge, and all were invited to partake in the revelry. Jason knew well that Pelias was indeed his uncle, and to this day kept the rightful king, Jason's father, imprisoned. This seemed like a great opportunity for a little vengeance and some celebration, and besides, Huron for all his wisdom wasn't the most affable company. With a spring in his step, he headed down the slopes of Mount Pelion towards Yolkus. Coming to the crossing of the river Anoros, which had its headwaters on Mount Pelion, he noticed an old woman vacillating in the swift flow of the stream. Kindness to strangers was one of the first things taught to Jason by his gruff mentor, and he quickly entered the water to offer assistance. Slightly alarmed at the stranger's approach, the woman began to stutter. Excuse me, young man. Woo! As Jason plucked her from the water and put her over his shoulder. Quite all right, madam. Just doing my civic duty, as he placed her down on the opposite bank. Rather unceremoniously, I might add. Patting himself on the back for a deed well done, Jason looked down to see he had lost a sandal in the river. The old woman caught his look of disappointment and consoled him. Not to worry, young man. That sandal is now with old Aegeus, pointing out to the sea. But I see a bright future for you, and at least one matching pair of sandals to be sure. Jason bade her well, and continued on his journey to Yolkus. Looking a little like a vagabond with his one sandal, he arrived at the water's edge just in time for the sacrifice. The townspeople all smiled and waved at the newcomer, who was well known around town. Getting ready to propitiate Poseidon, who also happened to be his father, Pelias took one look at the one-sandaled Jason and had an apoplectic fit. Sorry, but we'd need just a little more backstory at this point to contextualise the king's reaction. Years before, the king sought an oracle to see if his kingdom was safe. Having stolen his brother's crown, imprisoned him, and murdered other contenders, you can understand his paranoia. He was told prophetically that all will be well, but to mind the one-sandaled man... Hence his reaction when Jason arrived missing a sandal. It gets worse for poor Pelias, as before he took up the business of betrayal and usurpation, he had as a young man upset Hera, badly. We don't need to go into the details, but suffice to say he slaughtered one of her suppliants on an altar to the goddess. A terrible move, and we've seen at length what the wife of Zeus will do if someone doesn't give her an apple, let alone desecrate her holiest of holies. Jason didn't know it yet, but he had become by fate and by design, the pawn of Olympian Hera. By taking the form of an old woman struggling to cross the river Anoros, she contrived for him to lose his sandal, thus fulfilling the prophecy and setting her vengeance in motion. The Greek language is just so beautifully rich and descriptive that they even have a word specifically for a man with one sandal, monokrepis. Regaining his composure in an instant, Pelias's mind went into overdrive, putting all the pieces together, Sure, he'd seen the farm boy around town over the years and heard talk of his living with old Huron up on Pallion. But now seeing him, Monokrepis, 
walking straight out of prophecy and into his life, it all made sense. Jason's accursed wife, Alcimede, had close ties to the wise centaur, and if that wasn't evidence enough, the next words out of Jason's mouth confirmed his suspicions. Hello, uncle. He'd have to find those hapless midwives and really give them something to sing about next time. Jason had spent many nights in collusion with his mentor, working through the ways he might set his family free and reclaim his birthright. Dirty and no good as his uncle might be, he was popular as king, and Jason a relative nobody in comparison. Simply arriving and announcing his claim would never be enough, but if he could make himself a hero, like Perseus or Bellerophon, then the people would acclaim him king. Master and student worked out a cunning plan to achieve both ends, and the fast-thinking, scheming Pelias played right into their hands. Jason, the king said with a wry grin, if you were king of this land and someone threatened your right to rule, what would a fitting punishment be for such hubris? In response, Jason said, Why, uncle, that's an incredibly unfortunate hypothetical, but if I was faced with such a situation, I would send that man on a quest for the Golden Fleece. The king could scarcely believe his luck. Kinslaying was a pollution worth avoiding if possible, which is why his half-brother still rotted in jail. Could it be that Jason was signing his own death warrant? Everyone knew the Golden Fleece hung in an oak tree that was within a sanctuary of Ares, guarded by a dragon that never slept in faraway Colchis. It was as good as murdering Jason himself, but without the obvious mess or upsetting the mercurial beings on High Olympus. Too good to be true. With assurances from the king that he would spare no expense in helping Jason in his endeavour, he set to the planning. Huron had ensured he was no idiot. He knew that Pelias saw it as a mission impossible and merely a convenient way of avoiding his crimes, fate and comeuppance. What the king didn't know was that Jason hadn't spent all of his time farming the slopes of Mount Pelion and talking to Taciturn Horse Guy. He had participated in the Caledonian boar hunt with Meliga and had some powerful friends. He sent them all an offer of adventure and riches and begged them travel henceforth to Yolkus. In the meantime, he needed some transport. As far as he knew, there was only one flying golden ram around, but there were two problems with that mode of travel. Problem one, the ram only had two seats, and as we've seen, one of those wasn't very stable. Problem two, the ram was dead. It was at that moment that a stranger to Jason ran up and conveniently solved all of his locomotive issues. Hi, you must be Jason. Well, of course you are. Just like she said, you only have one sandal. You know you really should get another one. Walking like that could give you some serious alignment issues down the track. Before the bewildered Jason could get a word in, the newcomer continued. Where was I? That's right. Last night, Athena appeared to me in a dream and told me to build the mightiest ship there ever was. I complained that I'd never built a ship before, but she told me not to worry, that she would help, and more, she would provide some magical timber from Dodona, too. She said, look for the man with one sandal and help him in his quest. Well, here you are. I'm going to build you a ship. With that, he sped off in the direction of the shipyards. Perplexed, Jason raised his eyebrows briefly, shrugged his shoulders, and followed. Time passed, and Argus, the seemingly crazy Athena dreamer, began to lay the keel and ribbing for the ship that would carry them into legend. The heroes began trickling in too, sometimes singularly and other times in pairs. The brothers Pallios and Talamon arrived, proud in their bearing and exuberant in youth. A far cry from the old men who would one day see their sons, Achilles and Ajax respectively, sail off to Troy, never to return. 
Putting the finishing touches on his next greatest hits album, Orpheus presented himself all the while plucking his lyre. A legendary poet, musician and singer, he made sure there would be no shortage of acoustic delight on the voyage. Two sets of brothers came next, Edis and Lincius from Messene and Castor and Polyduces of Sparta. Allies now, but a bitter rivalry later developed resulting in the death of the former pair and the catasterization of the latter. Taking a break from his labours, Heracles couldn't resist the opportunity to get away from the daily grind of slaying hydras, cleaning stables and apple picking. A cruise was just what he needed and he brought his beautiful and young companion, Elas, along for the journey. Son of Apollo and seer, Edmon, joined the quest after seeing in a vision both his fame and his death if he sailed from Iolcus. A true vision, in that I just mentioned him after all this time. Every ship needed a good steersman, and there was none better than Tiphys. He was said to understand the erratic and often cruel nature of the sea as if born to it. All up, around 50 of the premier champions of the heroic age assembled with Jason, a powerful collection of might not repeated until the Trojan War. More time passed, and the heroes assembled around the newly constructed vessel. It would be named Argo, in honour of its chief engineer. The final touch was a carved figurehead of either Athena or Hera. It was a little hard to tell as the carver had been taking his wine neat of late, but either way, it was female. Made of magical timber from Dodona, at times of need the image of the goddess could converse with the Argonauts, as they called themselves. They constructed an altar to Phoebus Apollo on the shoreline, sacrificed a bull upon it, and received the god's blessing. Boarding the ship, the heroes found their allotted rowing benches, and Orpheus struck up a rowing tune on his ever-present lyre. As the men bent their backs to the task, a roar from the crowd assembled lifted their hearts as the oars slapped the waters of the Aegean. Old Polias was there too, just as happy as his subjects but for far more nefarious reasons. He was just one face among the many that slowly faded into the distance as the Argo bore eastwards and Colchis bound. If the Argonauts had bought the express ticket, we could really cut to the chase, but they decided to save a little money, took the stopping all stations route instead. Most of their escapades are fairly entertaining, so let's start working through them now. First stop of note saw the Argo pull into the harbour on the Isle of Lemnos. Situated in the northeastern Aegean, it's an idyllic place to spend the summer. Not so nice in winter. It would also be the place where poor old Philoctetes was marooned after incurring a festering and smelly snake bite on the Archaeans' way to Troy. However, for Jason and his crew, they landed at a time when the island was entirely peopled by women. The story goes that the women folk failed to honour Aphrodite correctly and she cursed them by causing them to smell repulsively. Rather than institute a regime of cleanliness, their husbands decided to spend time in nearby Thrace, cavorting with the locals and the less smelly females of the region. They eventually had to return home though, and when they did, their less than impressed wives hatched an island-wide conspiracy and had them all murdered. Unfortunately, things got a little out of hand and rather than the just no-good husbands, the enraged women ended up killing all the men of the island, young and old. The only one spared was the aged king Thoas, whose daughter surreptitiously stuffed the old man in a box and set him to drift on the waves. Spying the Argo coming into harbour, the by now mollified and remorseful inhabitants believed at first that vengeance was at hand. They held their breaths as Jason disembarked and inquired about provisions. 
imagined their joy at realising he knew nothing of their crimes and moreover had another fifty heroes with him who were equally oblivious. That joy was mirrored by the Argo's crew at the realisation they were the only men on the island. Did the Argonauts keep their eye on the prize far away in Colchis? <laughs> Not even for a second. Falling in with the women, they did their best to repopulate the island as fast as possible. Luckily, Heracles was above such base needs and in time reminded the Argonauts that they were no closer to the Golden Fleece and such dalliances were not becoming of heroes. Sufficiently chastened without being chased, the crew of the Argo set sail again to the wails of the Lemnian women. From there, Jason and his men sail up through the Dardanelles Strait, or the Hellespont, as it was called. Rowing hard against the current, a southerly breeze aided their course until the strait opened up into the Propontis, or Marmara Sea as it's known today. Sailing along the inland sea's south coast, they came upon an island, though closer inspection showed it was thinly connected to the mainland by a barely submerged isthmus. Interestingly, one half of the island is inhabited by chthonic monsters, each with six arms, ferocious and murderous creatures that would surely devour the other half of the island's civilised people, called the Dolionis, were they not descended from Poseidon and under his protection. The Argonauts, upon disembarkation, kill a bunch of the six-armed devils and in turn make friends with the Dolionis and their leader, King Chysicus. The king had recently wed and Jason and his crew joined in the celebrations. After the bar tab had run out for the wedding's reception, and you'll bet Ajax's father Telamon made a particularly large dint in it, the men resupplied the Argo. Bidding farewell and good luck to their new comrades, they caught the afternoon tide and sailed on. Dark and foreboding clouds began to appear on the horizon as a tempest whipped itself up on the normally flat-surfaced sea. Darkness, blacker than night, descended on the lone ship, punctuated by bursts of corpuscent lightning which made the surrounds ethereal. They knew not where they were, but the call of land was made and the crew steered the ship straight for it, beaching the Argo in the process. No sooner had the men secured the vessel and began looking for shelter, they were attacked by unknown foes in the darkness. The strobing effect of the lightning made it a battle of frames, but the Greek heroes recovered from their initial shock and slowly took the upper hand. The slaughter was great, and the Argonauts scattered the survivors of the battle back to whence they came. As the storm abated, morning sunrise pierced the gloom to reveal the carnage of the previous night. The crew were shocked by the revelation that their attackers were none other than the same Dolionis they celebrated with just yesterday. Even poor King Chysicus lay crumpled on the beach, a massive wound splitting his chest where Jason's own sword had smitten him in the storm. What seemed to be a buzz in their ears resolved itself into a distant wail of misery, coming in the direction of the survivors who escaped last night. Surely, news of their people's defeat had reached the town and been disseminated. Honourable men, the Argonauts were mortified at the tragic twist of fate. They learned from the melancholic townsfolk that a lookout had seen the Argo land and disgorged her armed crew onto the shoreline. Believing it to be an attack by nearby Pelasgians, King Chysicus assembled his men to meet the threat. A case of mistaken identity. All were forlorn. The Greeks set to and assembled elaborate funerary mounds for the deceased, adorned with trophies and altars. The final act of this tragedy was the suicide of Cleti, Chysicus's newly married bride. Hanging herself in grief, there is a nearby fountain named after her, created by tears shed by the nymphs at her pain and passing. 
With heavy hearts, the heroes rode on, back across the now smooth surface of the Propontis. Stopping later that same day by the river Caius to take on supplies of fresh water and stores, not willing to ask the people of Caesicus for more than they had already taken. The local Mycenaeans were most accommodating in seeing to the group's needs. Heracles and Elas departed from the ship and headed inland. The former in search of some timber to replace his recently broken oar, the latter with a bronze pitcher in hand looking for some of the magical spring water the locals had spoken about. The pair split up after some time to set about their tasks and agreed to meet again after an allotted time. Heracles soon came across a piece of wood he could fashion into an oar, one hopefully strong enough to withstand his powerful arms. Returning to the meeting place, he began to wait for his friend. However, Elas would not be coming back. The locals forgot to mention that the sacred spring was attended by some nymphs. One of them saw the beautiful youth just as he was dipping his pitcher into the water. Besotted, the nymph rose up and dragged Elas below the surface and into the depths of her realm. Polyphemus, another Argonaut, was foraging at the time and heard the boy's scream. Running to where he thought the sound came, he saw only the still surface of the spring. Assuming bandits had attacked the boy and abducted him, Polyphemus drew his sword and charged off in pursuit. Running into Heracles, whom had heard the commotion, he told the son of Zeus what he knew. Forgetting his oar and the quest, Heracles at once set out in the direction of the non-existent bandits. Returning to the Argo, Polyphemus informed Jason and the crew of what had transpired in the wild. They were four waiting for Heracles' return, but the steersman Tiphys informed them that if they did not sail soon, they risked missing the tide and being run aground permanently. Jason nodded his assent, and the ship left with breeze billowing in its sails, and without the premier hero of the age. Jason and the crew were in various states of despondency over the loss of three of their number, for Polyphemus decided to stay behind as well and wait for Heracles. None were more vexed than Talamon, who lashed out angrily at his leader for seemingly leaving Heracles behind to rot. Would you rather leave behind the greatest office, Jason? He spat. Then risk his continuance with our journey and his overshadowing of your own glory? Like his son, Talamon had some serious anger issues and was possibly a little hungover from the wedding the day before. The situation looked like it could easily turn to one of mutiny as the other men began voicing their dissent as well. Before events could get too heated, the surface tension of the silky water's surface split with a crystalline envelope of water containing a godlike being. The water receded to leave Glaucus standing before the Argo and her warring crew, quite literally walking on water. In his Metamorphosis, Ovid uses his supreme eloquence to describe how Glaucus went from being a humble fisherman to an immortal sea god. After a hard day's work drawing in his nets, he pulled into an area of wilderness untouched by mortal hands. Sitting down, he released his catch onto the grass to begin cleaning. To Glaucus's surprise, no sooner had the dead fish touched the ground than they started to flip around as if alive once more. Things that make you go, hmm. Wondering if the grass itself had magical properties, he plucked a few blades, chewed, and swallowed them. He immediately felt a flutter in his heart, and his body morphed into a type of merman, and in that moment he knew he would never walk upon the earth again. His dramatic appearance before the Argonauts placated the rage that was building. His words further soothed them. You have no right to retain Heracles and take him to Colchis. The son of Zeus has been commanded to complete his twelve labours and is but half through. 
Set not upon one another, for it is the Olympian's will that he returns to Argos and his own quest. With that, the deity slipped back beneath the surface of the Propontis, and the contrite Argonauts sailed on. For the three heroes left behind, fate dealt as she did with such things. Elas became the husband to his nymph captor and spent out his life in her realm. Polyphemus founded a city on the spot of their arrival. Eponymously named Caius, after the river, he ruled fairly over the Mycenaeans. Heracles, out of his mind with grief, made the locals swear to never cease in their search for his lost companion. The locals so pledged the mighty hero, and offered up some of their noblest sons in hostage as a sign of their commitment. Appeased, Heracles returned to Argos to take up the remaining labours. As a vignette, Apollonius in his Argonautica mentions that even in his time, the locals of Caius ask any traveller that happens by, Have you seen Elas? Back on the Argo, the men sailed through the night, but morning found the ship's sails breathless and they decided to row to a nearby piece of land not far from the entry of the Bosporus. It's at this moment that Apollonius finishes book one of his Argonautica. But before I wrap up, I'd like to share with you the story of how the Bosporus got its name. Zeus was once more up to his old tricks. Actually, there was nothing old about them, considering he was always coming up with weird and wonderful ways to spread his immortal seed. This time his gaze alighted upon beautiful Io, or Io, a priestess of Hera at that goddess's temple in Argos. Io's father was the head priest. Bit of a family affair. The young priestess initially rejected Zeus's advances, but after the Olympian poisoned her father's auricular visions, she was ejected from hearth and home. Zeus, having removed Io from the holy sanctuary of his wife, further obfuscated his actions by turning her into a pure white heifer. Naturally, Hera caught on and innocently asked her husband for a gift. Anything, my dear. She told him she would love that beautiful white cow roaming around Argos. Outsmarted as always, he had no reasonable excuse to refuse and presented Hera with her requested prize. She then set Io to be guarded by the hundred-eyed monster Argus Panoptes, who would well be able to watch over the object of Zeus's affection. Not normally being one to give up, the Olympian king made no exceptions this time and enlisted the aid of Hermes. The messenger god could also sing a pretty good lullaby and as he serenaded the guardian, each one of those hundred eyes began to close, and pretty soon Panoptes was snoring away. Hermes took the opportunity to slay the beast, ruining any further attempts by Hera to use his services. The goddess still had some tricks up her sleeve and sent a magical gadfly after Eo the cow. The flies are anathema to the bovine variety of beasts, and chased poor Eo all over the land, making it impossible for Zeus to find her. The place where she crossed from Europe to Asia was thus named the Cow Passage, which in ancient Greek is Bus Poros. That's where we get the name for the strait connecting the Sea of Marmara with the Black Sea, the Bosporus. Next time we'll start with the Argonauts' arrival into Babrycia and their confrontation with King Mikos. We met him in episode 8 as part of the Dioscori's tale, and he had a very interesting way of greeting people. The next episode of Spartan History Podcast will be number 13, The Sons of Heracles, coming out on Sunday the 6th of September. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. A special shout-out this time to the Spartans and their allies who in August 2,500 years ago stood proud against insurmountable odds of Thermopylae. They so frustrated the Persians that their attempted total conquest of Greece was delayed. 
This gave the fractious Greek peoples time to rally their forces and a year later see off the invaders at the battles of Salamis and Plataea. In my mind it was the birth cry of Western civilization, and in the future we'll be going into it in extreme detail. Please check out my website spartanhistorypodcast.com where I'll have extra information relating to the podcast along with photos and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter at Spartan underscore history and on Facebook too at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods from and leave a review. See you next time.